Well, it's a uh, great pleasure for me uh, to congratulate myself. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, um, t as Tom says, uh, I feel like uh, uh, we have been somewhat uh, stalking each other. Um, but um, this is a big day, uh, a very big day. And uh, in many respects, it is a, um, a tough day for Australia, even a bleak day for Australia, uh, because I believe that just as Donald Trump ended the political career of Jeb Bush uh, in three words, low energy guy, <laughs> Um, Donald Trump, uh, in all seriousness, in my view, uh, has just ended Malcolm Turnbull's political career uh, in uh, one uh, sentence uh, that was the worst call uh, so far. Um, now, um, my task... Um, besides congratulating myself, uh, uh, is to say, what do I think Trump did right, uh, according to Jeremy's instructions, uh, being the obedient male that I am, uh, and what are its implications for the Australian establishment? And I want to say that um, there has been this feeling uh, that... Trump was, as Tom said, some kind of a buffoon, uh, some sort of a clutch, some guy stumbling into politics who had no idea what he was doing. And uh, I want to tell you that that has never, uh, never been my view. Uh, the most famous encapsulation of the campaign, which I think came from The Atlantic, I should credit the journalist whose name escapes me, uh, is that, um, you know, the media establishment uh, took Trump literally, but not seriously, whereas the American people took Trump seriously, but not literally. And can I say that uh, I believe, if I'm being absolutely frank, uh, that the Australian people uh, were entirely betrayed by the establishment media in their coverage of Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump and this campaign from the very first day. Uh, I believe the performance of the national broadcaster was an absolute disgrace. I believe <coughs> that, uh, the, uh, that there are basically only one or two genuine journalists worthy of the title left in the entire uh, empire of Fairfax Media. I believe that, um, you know, Fairfax Media, uh, its motto uh, in Latin, uh, Warwick Fairfax told me on one occasion, uh, was, in moderation all our glory. The Tory calls me Whig, and the Whig, he calls me Tory. Uh, well, I can tell you, um, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald's masthead now no doubt on the advice of an expensive consultant, uh, reads simply, independent, 
Always. Well, I think the Sydney Morning Herald should be sued for misleading and deceptive conduct. <laughs> because there is no organisation that the relationship between independence and the Sydney Morning Herald is the same proximity as sort of Western Sydney and the far side of the moon. <laughs> um, these guys are on a completely different planet. And the losers, okay, for somebody like me, and I suspect many in this room, I mean, I have been a Herald reader uh, essentially since I was old enough to hold an opinion. And the idea of opening the broadsheet, you know, and the smell of the ink on the page, and the, the power of that masthead in that distinctive font as a journal of record, which was something which bred in me this instinctive kind of respect, a sort of reverence, and I had this sense. Edmund Burke coined the expression the fourth estate as this sort of sacred, one of the great sources of ballast to protect the citizen. And yet what we have seen, you could go from one end of the national broadcaster to the other. You could walk up every one of the sort of 11, 12 floors at Ultima. You could knock on every single door. You could go into the back rooms of the production staff. You know, I was interviewed by the 7.30 report yesterday. Uh, the uh, sound guy, the 7.30 report, unlike Sky, you know, turns up with the interviewer, a sound guy and a camera guy. You know, when Sky News turns up, it's one guy with a camera, a microphone and sound, all three in one. Um, the sound guy uh, says, you know, a bit of chit-chat, chit-chat. I said, oh, yeah, I worked briefly, did some work for the ABC. Oh, yeah. he said, he's, oh, he said, I've worked for the ABC all my life. Uh, he said, uh, you know, I've never gone near commercial. Uh, he said, in fact, uh, I only watch the ABC. And then he said, you know, I have not seen a television commercial since the Montreal Olympics. <laughs> now, you want to talk about the bubble? You want to know how deep inside the bubble? I mean, this is, Ultimo is basically uh, Pravda 1950s. <laughs> Uh, and, and what the, the problem is, okay, the problem is the guy's telling me he hasn't seen a television commercial since the Montreal. He's telling me as if this is a mark of achievement. You know, this is a moment of pride for him that he has not been polluted by the commercial culture. Okay, and so what we've had in the treatment of Donald Trump is just one of this species of sneering, uh, looking down the nose, um, you know, this we talk about political correctness. Um, it is a phalanx. It's a phalanx. We've got Tom Switzer here. Tom Switzer, I would say, took Trump's audience seriously. But I will tell you, he was the only academic in the United States Studies Centre who did. The only one out of 30. Not a single news and current affairs broadcaster, analyst, commentator in the whole of the national broadcaster in any capital city, radio or television, took Donald Trump's audience seriously. We know the whole of Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs 
was entirely operating on the assumption that Trump was a joke, who had no chance, would be defeated. So the whole sort of organism of Australia's professional diplomatic apparatus was wrapping its arms around tongue-kissing Hillary Clinton <laughs> on the assumption that she was invincible obviously could not be beaten. Well, where does that... What we have discovered, there are consequences for that kind of catastrophic misjudgment, and we have just experienced one of them today. As Tom Switzer says, it's not just the consequence of the phone call, it's the briefing beforehand another one of these Liberals. Now, I'm sure that Steve Bannon would have turned to uh, the great man <laughs> and said... You're about to talk to the Justin Trudeau of Australia. <laughs> um, that's my sense about the talk, the locker room chat. <laughs> that would have been going on. And, um, you know, we had a situation where, you know, you, we've got, you've, you've, you finally had the tall timber, this massive uh, edifice of the establishment has just come crashing down. It's a whole new world. Everyone's in a state of shock. And so every significant Australian, you know, Donald Trump went over to the United States in the lead up to the election, didn't even seek to meet, sorry, Malcolm Turnbull didn't even seek to meet with Donald Trump. Oh, but it's all over John Kerry. You know, we love Barack Obama. We can't get enough selfies, you know, with uh, Hillary Clinton. Well, what is the consequence for 24 million Australians, right, who are not in the selfie, okay, who are not part of the establishment, who are exposed to risk? You know, they have got enough problems as it is. Besides, it's not just, you know, the question, could there be a Trump figure in Australia? All right, I think Australians are very tolerant. They're a combination of tolerant and disengaged when it comes to the political class, okay? They basically expect the political class to be self-serving. They basically expect uh, the political class to conduct themselves with low levels of care. They expect the political class to be fairly incompetent. <laughs> OK, but when the political class, as we have seen, for example, you know, with these three students at the Queensland University of Technology, well, you've got an institution of the Australian government which has turned its guns on three students and has harassed, has intimidated, has persecuted, has prosecuted them to within an inch of their lives. Well, I say they can go to hell. You know, this is what provokes revolt. This is what provokes revolt, when the government actually turns on the citizen and starts attacking them. And I'm going to tell you, um, if you want to understand Donald Trump, you need to read his book, OK? Uh, if you want to understand Julius Caesar, you need to read The Gallic Wars, OK? Because Julius Caesar wrote the book. Okay, and he reveals his mind in the book in his own words. Um, if you want to understand um, Winston Churchill, you know, you should read History of the English-Speaking Peoples. If you want to understand Donald Trump, you should read his book. Because uh, while he had the aid of a, uh, uh, you know, of a, of a 
co uh, of, a, of a writer, of a scribbler, um, there's absolutely no doubt these are the genuine thoughts of the man himself. And in, 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 in terms of saying what did Donald Trump do right, okay, the first thing was what he did right was his life before politics was a life outside of politics. Okay, and it's a very human story, and it's a story uh, you would do, we would all do well to understand. And, you know, things like, um, you know, his older brother, Freddie, was actually the better-looking one of the five kids who has absolutely smooth edges. Everybody loved Freddie. And Freddie got invited to all the parties, and everyone who met him thought he was a top bloke. Uh, but Freddie lacked the fire and the confidence to take on Fred Senior, who was a hard-nosed construction guy who started every day at 6am on a construction site. And Donald, Donald Trump said of his older brother, uh, he was sort of the older brother was pushed into the business, right? But he never really took to it, in part because he was always intimidated by the father, who was a hard man. And, um, but Donald Trump, talks about, in the book, his own aggression that he had even as a young boy. And on one occasion, he nearly got expelled for punching his music teacher because he formed the view that his music teacher didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> and then Donald Trump said he had this revelation that he had to channel his aggression into his using his mind to achieve outcomes rather than physically. And he went off to a military academy in high school to learn discipline. He finished up as captain of the baseball team. But uh, he learnt over the course of his life, watching his father, he said, I responded to the business environment and I wasn't intimidated by my father and I found that as I pushed back, if I disagreed with my father, that he actually respected it. And uh, Trump's 10 points in the art of the deal, if you want to understand his foreign policy, you need to read the 10 points in the art of the deal. One of the points is, if he says, if people treat me fairly, I'm the easiest guy in the world to get along with. He's, but he said, if people are unfair or disrespectful towards me on a matter of principle, I fight back. That's the Trump approach. Okay, whether you like it or don't like it. He says in the book, as I was growing up, I, I polarised people. He said, I found there was a group of people who absolutely loved me and would follow me over a cliff, and there were lots of other people who found me a kind of intimidating, disquieting, uncomfortable person. Okay? And Trump is saying, I'm used to that. That's my life story. I'm not intimidated by a million protesters. I'm just going to give you, I know I'm already out of time, you're indulging me, but I'm just going to, on matters of substance, okay, Stephen F. Cohen is the professor of Russian studies at Princeton University, talking about the way Trump communicates. He said, you have to understand Trump communicates in an elliptical way, okay, but you have to look through that to what in, what's in the man's heart, what is he trying to achieve. And one of the things that brought me to Trump is I've been looking at Syria, as we all have, looking at US foreign policy in Syria, looking at Australian foreign policy. And it's just been to me completely incoherent throughout the whole Obama administration. If you look at who our co-partners uh, are in Syria, 
you know, they are the worst grab bag of global terrorists and Islamic extremists that you would ever want to be stuck in a lift with. <laughs> uh, it is an embarrassment that we are... And then you've got Russia on the other side, OK, fighting Islamic State, Russian Green Berets going deep into Syria, getting killed. So at the time, we're making David Morrison... Australian of the Year, he is our military hero. You've got Russian Green Berets deep inside Syria directing the bombing raids on Islamic State and one of the guys realised he had been compromised by the Islamic State fighters who realised where he was and what he was doing and they moved in for the kill from all sides and his last order was to call in the bombs on his own position. Now, that's the Russian idea of valour. Our idea is David Morrison. <laughs> and we had it wrong. And the whole establishment, the whole foreign policy establishment was just grinding on with this stupid war. If you could distinguish morally between those on the side of Assad and those on the side of the opposition after al-Qaeda and the lads had moved in, I thought, you got, you know, you're kidding yourself. And Donald Trump looked at this and he says, OK, here we go. We've got inside NATO created at a time when the Berlin Wall was up and the Soviet Union was in place. OK, so inside NATO, we've got Turkey, who's buying oil from Islamic State, right? Well, we're fighting Russia, whose special forces are getting killed calling bombs in on their own position. Donald Trump is the only guy in the neighbourhood with the humility to ask the simple questions, have we got this right? Why don't we make friends with Russia? Maybe they want to be friends with us. And that was the first, at that point, I said, OK, I'm taking Donald Trump seriously because he is saying the king's got no clothes. And he did it again and again and again. He did it on the wall. He did it on the UN. He did it on education policy. He said, we've got to scrap Common Core. He turned around to, you know, you will talk about an outsider. Uh, the first question of the first debate, who will take the pledge? Is everyone taking the pledge they won't run against the, 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 the winner if they don't win? Everybody's one hand goes up. One guy. All the establishment said he's finished. You then had the, 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 the News Corp hosting the debate. First time in history a presidential candidate looked at the most powerful news network in the world and said, look, oh my God, I don't think I'm going to come. I think you need me more than I need you. That's Donald Trump. The last thing I'm going to tell you is that, you know, I spoke to Janet Albrechtson yesterday. She just returned from New York. She was talking to a close friend of hers. It's quite a senior journalist at the New York Times. And uh, she said, well, how do you, if they had this discussion, you know, how do you think it's going? And Mary Kessel, she said, you need to understand something. The American economy is on the balls of its feet, ready to go bang. And we've just punched through after, if you read, you know, what was written about the flight of capital that was going to take place. When the United States drops corporate tax from 30% to 15%, can I just tell you, capital is going to move. It's already moving. And uh, we are going to look like 
you know, the, the, the old uh, pub that never got done up, and there's a few Darrows out the front, uh, and you walk into the front and it's a mix of beer and urine smell, uh, that is what Australia is going to become. So I say, God bless Donald Trump. There you go.